Let's take our Bibles and go to Romans chapter 15 this morning. Romans chapter 15. Continuing to move through the chapter. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 22 through 29 today. We've been talking about Paul's plans and his priorities in the ministry that God has given to him as he has been planting churches all across Asia, what we know as Asia Minor, Turkey today. Looking for the day when he will get to Rome via Jerusalem. And he lays that all out today in the text before us. Let's look to the scripture this morning and then we'll pray and jump into the word. So Paul has been talking about how He has made it his aim, it has made it his ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ had been named prior, because he wanted everyone to hear, he wanted everyone to know. And so Paul is going, he is, Paul is one of these men who is like a pioneer. Some men are called to go, many are called to stay called to stay and to be faithful here, and we are to make it our ambition. But Paul is a pioneer missionary apostle who was sent, and he is going to places where people have never heard. There are people still today who find themselves in that very same situation. And so in verse 22, Paul says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered. From coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, and since I have longed for so many years to come to you, I am hopeful that I will see you as I pass through on my way to Spain. Spain is like the Wild West frontier of the Roman Empire. And this old man, Paul, is wanting to get to Spain. And I hope to be helped on my journey there by you after I have enjoyed your company for a little while. At the present, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem. I am bringing aid to the saints for the region of Macedonia, just north of Greece, where Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, was from. So Macedonia is named there in honor of Philip. He's from Macedon. And so Philip of Macedon, Macedonia, Philippi is in chief city of Macedonia. You remember the city of Philippi? What happens there is a church is planted. We have the letter of Philippians. So Macedonia and Decaia down in Greece... They have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor that are among the saints of Jerusalem. And they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Notice that word, owe it to them. And then he says, for if the Gentiles, if the nations have come to fellowship, to partake, to share in the spiritual blessings that God has bestowed on the Jewish people, 
then they have an obligation also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered to them, to the poor in Jerusalem, what has been collected, then I'm going to get on my way to go to Spain, and I'll stop by you, and I know that when I come to you, I'm going to come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would take your sword this morning as we sang today, this sword that makes the wounded whole. The scalpel that is in your hand, that does surgery on our hearts and on our souls. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take that sword, that double-edged sword today, and you would use it to accomplish your will in our midst. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. I thank you for each one that's here today. Lord, I don't know the burden on each heart, and yet I know that there are burdens. We've seen your blessing. We've seen things done in our lives that bring us great joy and praise, and yet I know as well that there are temptations and trials. Lord, meet each of us, we pray, in your word at our point of need today. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. We submit to him. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to notice in this text today, Paul, of course, is laying out again, you noticed as we read it, his general plan in the progression of events that he sees partaking or happening in his life. He begins this section in verse 22 by saying, this is the reason I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul there said at the beginning of the book, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, he says, I wanted to come to you so many times. I've wanted to get to Rome. I've wanted to meet you. When we get into chapter 16, we're going to be amazed at how many people that are in this church are people that Paul already knows. Achilla and Priscilla, Phoebe and others who have gone there to Rome and they are a part of this church. They are ministering in this church. There are many people he knows. There are many people he loves. And yet there are many people he's never met. And he wants to met them, meet them and he wants to bless them and he wants them to be a blessing to him. And he's longing to come to them. He's longing to get to Spain. But he's also going to journey to Jerusalem. And he's going to take a contribution there. A contribution that he has been blessed by the Lord to administer and to gather up from many of the churches that he has planted among the Gentiles. And they're going to go back to Jerusalem with this gift. He mentions hindrances. I thought about the word hindrance. Things happen in our life that sometimes are a hindrance to us the way we view them. And I want to just think about Paul's perspective on this for a minute. You know, the word to be hindered just is a Greek word which means to impede. It could mean to place an obstruction in front of someone else. Um, Kind of those kind of concepts. Something that gets in the way. And so 
Maybe we have a goal. Maybe we have a plan. Ever been there, done that? You know what your day's going to be. And you got it all lined out. And this is the way it's going to go. And then something happens. Maybe the car breaks down. You meet somebody and you talk for 45 minutes and you weren't planning to do that. Whatever the case may be in it, you look at it and sometimes it's just like a hindrance. It got in the way. We had our plan. We had our goal. We had our desire. And then this thing happened and it just messed up my day. You know, my, sad to say, your pastor's carnal perspective on hindrances is many times I just get annoyed at them. Right? How about you? Anybody been there, done that? Something happens and you didn't plan it. It wasn't the way you thought the day should go. You laid it all out and then this thing comes along and it screwed up your day. And then you're like me and you get crabby and you take it out on other people around you. I don't know what was just said, but keep it to yourself. You're hindering me. And I'm annoyed. No. You know, we get annoyed. But what we need to learn to do is, you know, if we are walking in the Spirit and we are controlled by the Lord and we recognize that the day is His, it will change our perspective. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why it is important to start your day with the Lord. Now, some of us are not awake till we get the third cup of coffee. And I understand that. And sometimes you may do better, the way your mind works or whatever, you may do better having a quiet time with the Lord in the evening. Maybe it's at noon. I don't know. Whatever works, that's great. But Andrew Murray used to say this. You don't give a concert and then tune your instrument. You tune the instrument before the concert. And it is important if we get our heart in tune with the Lord as we begin the day. That may not be 45 minutes because you may got to get to Jackson. And you stumble out of bed and you get in the car, but maybe as you're driving you have Christian radio on or some other thing, and you're getting your heart in tune with the Lord so that when things come into your life, it's not just an annoyance. What we need to look at is these things are really divine appointments, aren't they? They are divine appointments. We talked about providence last week. We talked about miracles, but we also talked about providence, how God is directing events in our life, and nothing happens by chance. Nothing. This is Paul's perspective as he goes through life. Now, let's just consider the flow of events that happens that is related to what we just read. Paul tells the church at Rome, this is my goal. I want to get to Spain. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to give this contribution from all the churches there. And then I'm going to come to Rome. I'm going to stay with you for a little while, and you're going to help me to get to Spain. 
That is his perspective. When you read Acts chapter 20 to 28, you will find that what Paul wanted to happen and the way Paul viewed things as happening is not what happened. That helps us think about Paul's perspective on hindrances. Because when Paul is sitting in the prison in Rome, he writes the church at Philippi. And he says this, I want you to know, brethren, that what happened, me sitting in this prison, was for the furtherance of the gospel. I wanted to go to Spain, but God put me in a prison in Rome to tell the praetorian guard of Caesar all about Jesus. My plan was this, but God's plan was this. And when I look at what God's plan is, and I see it unfold, and I have the perspective of faith, then I see what God is orchestrating and what God is doing as a blessing. It may not be what I wanted, but am I going to submit my will to him? That is the battle. And that's where either the blessing comes or the bitterness. Blessing or bitterness. Now, in Paul's journey, this is what happens. In Acts chapter 20, he tells the Christians, as he is going through these churches that he has planted, he wants to arrive in Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he is on a journey. It's not a quick journey. He's not grabbing a, you know, a, a red-eye flight out of Achaia. No, he's on a boat, and he's walking, and he's grabbing a donkey, and, you know, it's, it's dusty, and it's hot, and it's miserable, but he's on his way. And he's hoping to arrive, his desire is to arrive in Jerusalem by Pentecost. As he goes, he is spending time with various Christians. And as he spends time with them, repeatedly, people are telling him, the Holy Spirit says this, when you get to Jerusalem, you are going to be arrested. You are going to be in trouble. And so there were repeated warnings of arrest by the Spirit during this journey. We don't see it in this text. Paul does not allude to that. His desire is still to get to Spain. Paul says to people, as they're telling him this, people are saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul keeps saying, none of these things move me. I do not count my life dear to myself. I'm going. I have this contribution. I'm going to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he arrives and he reports to James and the other elders of the church. And it is no doubt that at that time, he gives to them this offering, this contribution that they have raised. By the way, they weren't able to put it in a bank in Macedonia and then make a bank draft when they got to Jerusalem. He's got a bunch of people with him. And no doubt it's a danger in the ancient world to carry a lot of money with you. And these guys have gold and silver and it's probably stashed in their shoes and under their belts. And, you know, these are all men that he trusts that they're not going to steal these funds. They're carrying them on their person and yet it is dangerous. 
And they get there and they gather it all up. They give it to the church at Jerusalem to be used for the saints. And we're going to come back to that idea of this offering in a little bit. And then while he is there, he goes into the temple. He takes a vow. You can read the entire story. I don't have time to develop the whole story. But he goes into the temple. The Jewish mob, who is opposed to him anyway, has seen a Gentile with him in the city. They accuse him of bringing that Gentile into the temple. And this mob, you can picture this like a riot. And they're like pulling his hair out and tearing his clothes off and they're beating him and they're trying to kill him. The Romans see what's happening and the cohort comes down. They disperse the mob. As they disperse the mob, they find Paul. They arrest him. And as a result of his arrest and explanation... He ends up appealing to Caesar, and then we have his journey to Rome, his shipwreck, and how he arrives. All of that unfolds in the book of Acts. That's what actually happens. Now, we could take weeks to study those chapters and to explain all the events, but I wanted you to get them in a nutshell as we look at this text because it is pertinent. Now, I want you to notice the word partner. This word is going to figure heavy in the rest of my message. And I want you to get this one in your brain. I had some aha moments this week as I was studying and thinking about fellowship and partnership. And the Holy Spirit gave me some insights that were kind of like, wow, special moments with me and the Lord to think about what this stuff is. In this text, in two places... A form of a Greek word is used. It's the word koinonia. Have you ever heard that word? It means to fellowship. It's used in various ways, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. In verse 26, it says this, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to fellowship, to partner to share with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And then he says, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed, I want you to notice this, they owe it. For if the Gentiles have partnered, this is the word koinonia, form of that word, have partnered in their spiritual blessings They also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Let's think about this. Think of the immediate situation at hand. In 1 Corinthians 16, in verse 1, Paul is writing to a church, the Corinthian church, part of Greece and Achaia, and he says, Now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save it in keeping in proportion to how he has been prospered so that no collection will need to be made when I get there. When I arrive, I will send with letters those that you recommend to carry this money to Jerusalem. 
If it is suitable for me to go as well, they can travel with me. So at this time, when Paul writes Corinthians, he's gathering up this offering, but he has not yet made for definite sure that he's going to go to Jerusalem, but he's for sure going to send it with people that the church trusts. He's going to give it to them in their hands. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 deal with this whole subject of this offering that is being raised for the churches. And in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know how eager you are, and I've been bragging about you to the Macedonians. I've been saying Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal to give, to share, to partner has stirred up most of the Christians in Macedonia. So this is the immediate context. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are in the letters of Paul explaining what we have just read about in Romans 15. And he gave them some very specific instructions on how they are to raise this gift and then how they are to make sure it gets to Jerusalem. This is the first thing that I want you to think about here. He says you have an obligation to fulfill. And I want you to notice that word. He says you owe. Same word used in Romans 13 when he says this. Owe no man anything except what? To love him. Don't be in debt to anybody except for this one debt. Love. Their love is now to spill over in caring for other Christians. He is saying that the church in Macedonia and Achaia, the Gentiles, the nations who have come to obedience in Christ, have an obligation. They owe it. You either have a mortgage or it's paid. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, I'm debt free. You either have a mortgage, though. I still got taxes, so it's still not mine, right? But you either have a mortgage or you pay rent. And if you live in that house, you owe it, right? COVID or not, you owe it. You have an obligation. And what he is saying here is this. As a Christian, we have certain obligations, things that we owe. And he says here, you and I owe something to other believers. He is thinking about believers who are in Jerusalem, believers that these people will never meet. And he says, you owe them. You have partaken of their spiritual blessings. You owe them material things. Our obligation to other believers extends beyond these four walls. It extends to Ukrainian Christians. We owe them something. We owe to them our care. We've been blessed. And so he says we have an obligation to fulfill. Now, 
This obligation exists despite all the imperfections that existed in the Jerusalem church. Was the Jerusalem church a perfect church? No. Are there any perfect churches around the world today? No. Do we still owe them? Yes. They had an imperfect economic model. You can read it in the book of Acts. They're kind of practicing a form of communism, and because of that, they're all poor. (laughs) Right? That's the thing with communism. Everybody gets to share the misery. Everybody's poor in Jerusalem. Why? There's a lot of reasons, but one is a faulty economic model that these Christians are practicing. Creates a lot of problems in the church in Jerusalem. It's an imperfect economic model. Paul does not say to the churches of the Gentiles that are prospering materially, well, since those people in Jerusalem are communists and they have a bad economic model, you don't got to help them. Did he say that? No. The church of Jerusalem was full of legalistic, pharisaic Judaism. It is a huge division. It is not a perfect church. James is there. There are elders there. It has a lot of problems. You know, our aid to other Christians who are in need is not dependent on them having everything 100% right. It's not. We owe it to them. There are brothers in the Lord. Let's think about fellowship. Let's think about this word. This is kind of some of my aha moments. I want to talk about it for a minute. The word is koinonia. Um, It means in verse 26, it's a contribution. In verse 27, it means to share. The word is often translated to communicate. Communication. What is so interesting, though, is when we think about fellowship, In our understanding of the word fellowship, if I tell you, stay after church and fellowship, what do I mean by that in America, typically? Don't just go out the door, take some time and talk to each other. Isn't that, that's usually when we think of the word fellowship, we are thinking about talking to each other, that we need to take time as Christians to get to know one another, to be involved in each other's lives by getting to know each other. But it's so interesting. If you look this word up, hardly any times in the Bible does it mean to talk to each other. Hardly ever. God just takes that for granted. We do it. You know what it means? Most of the time, this word means to give material aid. When we do fellowship, what it means is we share. Amen. We share. We give material aid. That is the most common meaning of the word when this word is a verb. It doesn't have anything to do with visiting with each other. It doesn't have anything to do with having a potluck. It doesn't have anything to do with any of that. Although all that stuff is important. That's not what this word means. Let's think about it a little bit deeper. 
It's a family of words. The one way that this word is, it's an adjective. It word means to have things in common. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it says that the early Christians had all things in common. They were doing what? They were sharing. They were living in Jerusalem, and none of their possessions individually did they regard as their own, but they just shared with each other. It was all in common. I'm not going to explain that. I'm not going to pass judgment on it. I'm not going to say it was good or it was bad. That's just what it says in Acts chapter 2. When the word koinonio is a verb, you remember language and grammar. When it's a verb, it's an action. It most often means to share just like we see in this text. When it is a nominative, now this is the thing that I want you to really, this grabbed me. It's a feminine noun, then it becomes a nominative, which means it is a title. Now here's where this gets interesting to me. These two words, koinonia, koinonos, masculine noun. One speaks of an entity, a partnership. That is a noun, a partnership. That is an entity that is formed. So a partnership has what in it? Partners. They're also nouns. So you have a partnership, that is a noun, and you have partners who are part of the entity. Okay? Now follow with me as we think about this a little bit deeper. When we use this word fellowship, we use it various ways, or partnerships. We may use it in a business context. Some of you in here may have a business and you're a sole proprietor. And you may even have people that work for you. But if somebody works for you, how is being an employee different than being a partner? Think about that with me. In a partnership. So we have business context. We have people who have businesses where there's partnerships. We also understand what shares and shareholders are. Shares and shareholders, vested interests, all those things with a business context. Also, we use the word fellowship. We use it talking about medicine. There are doctors who are what's called fellowship-trained doctors. That means they were trained in fellowship with doctors who mentored them. They didn't just have the opportunity to learn themselves, get to do those knee surgeries where they cut out your knee. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have my knee replaced by a guy who's saying, this is my first go. I want a guy who's been fellowship-trained. He sat with a mentor who has done it a hundred times and he watched him and he helped and he fellowshiped, he partnered in learning how to do that surgery. So there's a mentoring process in medical fellowships. There are academic fellows. We won't go into that one. Think about this one. This is a great one. Marriage is a what? Not a master-slave relationship, guys. Marriage is a what? Partnership. It is a legal, covenantal entity that is a partnership. That is why it says in the vows, what? 
all my worldly goods are yours. We are partners. It's a partnership. That's the way we use this word, to partner. Titus 1.4 talks about a common faith, a common salvation in Jude. Acts 2 and 4 says the disciples had all things in common. Oh, this is one that we partner. We partner with Christ in his suffering. When we entered partnership with Christ, part of that partnership deal is not just all the prophets. It's the what? The suffering. His blood is what brings us into the fellowship and keeps us in the fellowship in 1 John. Now, in a technical sense, this word is used in the Scripture. And I want us to think about it in its technical sense because this helps us understand the church, what the church is. And I'm not just talking about Emmanuel Bible Church. I'm talking about the church. So we have an obligation to our brothers and sisters wherever they are. Why? Because we are partners. Don't just think about it like we get to talk to each other. We are what? Partners. In a technical sense, this word is used in the scripture. In Luke 5, the sons of Zebedee were koinonos. They are business partners with Peter and Andrew. Now, think of a business partnership. In a business partnership, and I just want you to think about how business relates to this, because this is where my mind really went on this one, is becoming a partner instead of an employee changes everything. When you're a wage slave and you just go to work and you put in your time, and you just draw your salary, and life is just good, and, you know, whatever, and, and, and I'm just floating through life. You know, you don't, it's just, I go to work. I get my paycheck. I'm an employee. But if you are a partner in a business, everything's different, isn't it? The way you view that. And that mindset transferred into Christ changes everything. We are partners in Christ. The glory of this astounds me. Notice what Jesus said in John 15. I do not call you slaves anymore. He's talking to his apostles. Because a slave doesn't know what his master's going to do. He just shows up and goes to work. I have called you friends because I am making known to you everything. We are partners. We don't just get to fellowship with each other. We are partners with God. This is astounding to really consider. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 9, he says this, God is faithful, and you were called by him into the fellowship of his Son. Here's the entity, the nominative, 
the entity, the business entity, is what? His son. And I am not just an employee in that entity. I am an equal partner. And so are you. We were called into the fellowship, the partnership of the Son. I was going to talk about the fellowship of the ring. I don't have time. Now, there are limits of Christian partnership, and I don't have time to develop this. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he just simply says this. Don't be unequally yoked unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship does does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? We are the sanctuary of the living God. There are limits to Christian fellowship. But having said that... When we think about the limits of Christian fellowship, in Matthew 5, Jesus says this, I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So what he's saying there is God himself has a care for those who despise him. And so God's common grace is a model for our emulation. We do good to everyone. We minister to anybody. We see somebody in need, we don't ask them. We give to them, right? God is a God who in His common grace ministers to His people on the planet. But in a special way, He ministers to His partners. So in Galatians 6, it says this, Therefore, as God gives us opportunity, we must work for the good of everyone. For the good of everyone. But especially, especially for our partners, for those in the faith. Special obligation. The purpose of the partnership, and I'll bring this to a close. Just notice this verse. This is where I was getting my aha moments. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And he has given this through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And by these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may what? Partner in something. What is it? What is it? The divine nature. Now think about this. From all eternity there was a partnership. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Partnership like none other. And then God created human beings. And human beings fell into sin. And God in his grace chose to save some from among that race. And in doing so, he did not just say to us as humans whom he saved, you're just now my slaves 
you just, you know, like the angels? This isn't true of the angels. What's true of us? He invited us by his grace and by his calling to actually enter into the partnership of the Godhead. Now, what does that mean? First thing I want to say is this. It's very important we make a distinction between nature and essence. You and I share in the divine nature, but we do not share in the divine essence. There's only one God. And we're not going to get to where we kind of grow into Godhood. That is not in the New Testament. That is not in the Scripture. When we talk about the essence of who God is, He does not share His glory with anyone. When we talk about nature, we are talking about that which God has communicated to us. So we would have to make a distinction between both His communicable and his non-communicable attributes. So there are some things in the essence of God that are his and his alone. God is everywhere present all the time without dividing his person. God can do anything. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God has these attributes that are non-communicable. But then there are other attributes that are part of his nature that he communicates with us. His love, his faithfulness, his justice, his mercy, his grace. And we share in that part of his nature. Now, we understand communicable and non-communicable. If I come up to you, you come up to me at the door, and you say, I was just diagnosed with cancer. I'll give you a hug, I don't care, right? I'm not worried I'm going to get you cancer. It's non-communicable. You come up to me at the door and say, I got monkeypox. I'll say, I'm praying for you, brother. I may not give you a hug. Why? Because that one is what? Communicable. We won't get into the politics of that. Did you know that 96, 96.9% of cases of monkeypox in the world are among what demographic? Homosexual men. 96.9%. That don't make the news, my friend. It shows you how much it is fake news. 96.9%. Okay. Communicable and non-communicable. We've got to close. So here's the big thing. Monogene. It's a Greek word, only begotten. Here it is. For God so loved the world, you know it, he gave what? His only begotten Son. That whoever believed on Him would what? Not perish, but have what? Eternal life. His monogene Son. He has one Son, one and only Son, who shares His divine essence. And He sent Him to die for me and you. And then he says to us, in Hebrews chapter 2, he is bringing many sons into glory. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother. We are his partners. 
We need to understand the glory of that reality. We share the divine nature. We are partners in Christ. And because of that, we are partners with each other. So let us close. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, it is mysterious to me to think that you would so lavish grace on me that you would choose to make me a partner. Not just a slave, not just an employee, not just a guy who gets into heaven by the skin of his teeth, a partner. I don't understand that kind of love, Father. Lord, you have partners all over the planet, and we owe them something. We owe them the blessings that we've received. Help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to live in the center of your will, understanding. You you tell us in your word there in Peter that you have set us free through, through this knowledge. Lord, help us to understand this, to rejoice in it and to live in it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.